the following episode of Geeks and Beats contains language or subject matter that may be unsuitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, so Richards has now joined us. See, this man knows how to do it right. He's got the prints, they're framed, they're hung on the wall. He's got a nice contrasting background color. I am in the bunker. I'm, it's the, I call it the troll work studio. Uh, <laughs> troll work studio. Uh, Richard, it strikes me that you need to drop by Alan's place and give him a hand in this uh, uh, decorating department. Are, are we doing Raider Room here? That's right. <laughs> All right, stand by. Here we go. Here we go. From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. Note, Geeks and Beats is for external use only. Cease use if itching persists. Pop life meets quarantine life. Richard Krauss drops by Studio 3B to talk about his web series, In Isolation With. Well, he actually didn't drop by because he's in isolation. Plus, why radio stations are dying, and I mean dying, to air funeral announcements. And now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. I found myself at Social Media North... everyone. Bonjour à tous and welcome to Social Media North. I was thrilled to have on that panel alongside uh, a remarkable cadre of broadcasting and new media professionals, a guy who seems to be straddling the line between old media and new media. And I think COVID-19 is playing a role in that. He is entertainment reporter extraordinaire Richard Krauss, who now has his own TV show dedicated to keeping on, keeping on while his regular TV show, which appears on regular TV, is in quarantine and into itself. And he joins us now from his own bunker. Richard, I got to tell you, much better background than Alan or me combined. I will agree. This is my home office. Uh, it, it wasn't ever meant to be a set. And so there's probably some stuff up there that people shouldn't really be seeing. But uh, we'll... I'm going to cover up as much of it as I can, just in case. Before we talk about um, this live streaming show that you're doing while the mainstream media is trying to figure out what to do next, I was I, I want to put a pin in that for a moment because you and I seem to have had a similar career trajectory to some degree. Your first job was at 16 as the nighttime DJ in Nova Scotia. My first job was 17 in Toronto being the operator pushing all the buttons for the DJ and I, I just knew there was some connection that we had <laughs> well I was terrible at it and I, I mean I've worked in radio fairly consistently since then uh, at a variety of different gigs and, and many different kinds of shows but I got hired there uh, to do uh, overnights I wrote and read obituaries I used to do a show called Swap Shop so yes. if you had an old baby carriage with three wheels on it that you wanted five bucks for, you could call in and then hopefully we'd help sell it for you. Michael did not have this experience working in Toronto. I, I did have that experience. I you worked did. in Owen Sound. I oh. had to write the funeral services okay. announcements, which, by the way, if you ever got something wrong in a funeral service announcement, you were in a whole world of hurt. Yes. But second of all, that swap shop phone-in show you did was most likely the most popular show on that small town radio station. 
uh, uh, CKBW in Bridgewater, Nova Scotia was the first radio station. Right. And what was your swap and shop show called? Oh, swap shop. Yes. Okay. So I worked at, at uh, CGRL in Kenora. And uh, yeah, we had, we had swap and shop. Same, same kind of thing. Just the stuff that people were trying to sell. You know, uh, uh, it, it, you know it's on the East Coast and, and they're my people and I love them. Uh, but so often it would be things like, well, you know, I got a, uh, a carton full of mason jars. They don't have any lids and I'd like to get a dollar for them, you know, that kind of thing. And people would call in. So, you know, maybe, uh, maybe it was me that was undervaluing. Maybe it was actually upcycling before upcycling was really hip and cool. Maybe, maybe. When it came to the funeral announcements at the radio station I worked at, you tell me if it was like this for you. The newscaster, which was me, had to write the funeral announcements and then the DJ would record them. They used to be live and then something went wrong. Yes, I have a story just like that. So when I asked why would you have to record them? Why would you not just do them live? It was explained to me that there was this one particular moment where the DJ read the funeral announcements live and he turned the page and he hit cold. And for those not in the business, when you hit something cold, it means you didn't read it in advance. He, He turns the page and hits cold the death of Harry Balls from Fenland Falls. And could not contain himself. Right. And from that point forward, the DJ recorded them. So we had in Kenora something uh, we would record them all. There were two. It was every day at 1240. And uh, you would do it live. You had a cart with some dirgy funeral music underneath. And you read the obituary. And inevitably, there was this guy named Ted who would come in and try to make the person on the air laugh during the funeral announcement. Uh, It was bad enough that everything back then that we did on the air was sponsored by a beer company. So in this particular case, we referred to the funeral announcements as the Labatt Stiff Report. And uh, one day, Ted came in, and he was, this is uh, at uh, when when the Alien movies were were really big. He came in wearing a T-shirt that said, in space, no one can hear you fart. As I was trying to read the obituary. And that pretty much, uh, that killed everything. No pun intended. That'll do it. Doing it in a, in a small community, uh, it was very likely that I knew some of the people that I was writing these obituaries for, too. So uh, I would often be the first person uh, to find out that, you know, a cousin or an uncle or something had died. Uh, and have to share that happy news with everybody else. The thing was, was that the funeral service announcements, as morbid as they were, and as gallows humor as we applied to the application of creating them, they were a huge revenue generator for any small-town radio station. Oh, yes. Uh, We would sign off at 1210 each night, and so the transmitter would go dark. And we would say, the following six hours are brought to you by such and such funeral home. The dead air was brought to you by the funeral home? Yes, six hours of dead air was brought to you by the funeral home. Yes. Wow. Let's fast forward from your days at CKBW in Nova Scotia as the youngest DJ in the Maritimes. I I have to tell you, I was not very good at it. And, And I will absolutely admit that. And I got fired within the year. I don't remember exactly how long I was there. It was probably there a year or so. 
And uh, the guy that fired me, his name was Bob McLaren, and I remember very clearly he brought me into the studio and said, you've got the voice, you, you understand the music, you have all that stuff, uh, but you, you just you know, do a spiel about facts and figures and about uh, how many number one hits the Rolling Stones have had. Nobody cares about that stuff. People want to hear about people. That was what he said to me, and those are the words that have reverberated with me throughout my entire career, right up to and including the TV show Pop Life and my, my new web series um, uh, in isolation with. These are both shows that are completely molded around the idea that they are not promotional. I'm not there to talk about your movie or your record or whatever it might be because I don't really care about that stuff. I just want to talk to you. And if we want to talk about your art, we're going to talk about it from the point of view about why you make your art, why you made that record not just, oh, it's great because we added a second guitar player. Who cares? Tell me about why you like doing it. And that is a direct straight line from Bob McLaren firing me that day at CKBW when I was 16 or 17 years old, straight through to today. A lot of people, when they go into interviewing, it's they, they their, their template is that of many interviewers who've come before them where they got to get to the bottom of the technical aspects of things. And that's no, each of these artists are real people who have real human motivations for what they do. Tell me about that. Make them relatable to me. Don't tell me, you know, it's occasionally it's cool to hear, okay, you know, who directed this film, who produced this record. Okay, that's kind of fun. But tell me something about what you do when you're not making music. Tell me who you are as a human being. That's, that's the stuff I love. And Richard, I will give you two words, one name. Brian Linehan. Oh, there he used to be my neighbor. He used to be your neighbor. I, I worked with Brian Linehan very early in my radio career, and it was remarkable to watch him interview. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And he's one of the people that I certainly used to watch and, and learn from. And he was from a pre-internet day when you couldn't just go online and read Wikipedia and then go in and do the interview. He actually had a library full of books and he would read five books on Barbara Streisand. He would call people. He would do research before he would sit down. And people loved talking to him. But if you watch those shows now, his questions are five minutes long sometimes. Oh, yeah. And Well, I think the only thing that's intimidating is that I'm sitting here with a man who was born in Hamilton and maybe one of the few people <laughs> in show business who has a B.A. in psychology. And sociology work. and a BA in social work. Yeah. Was that in preparation for a life in show business? A BA in social work? No, it was. Um, it was just. I, I mean, I, I still am very involved in social work, and I still am involved with taking out kids, and and I might end up doing that someday. You know, there's always that sort of gotcha moment in every one of his interviews where he would say, you know, on July 5th, 1961, it was raining. And, you know, he would then eventually get to the to the question and the person would be like, how do you know this? That was his entire thing is about knowing more about the person than they knew about themselves. And that was lampooned on SCTV quite easily. Brock Linehan, yeah. <laughs> my, my, my story about Brian Linehan, though, he taught me a very valuable lesson when I watched him interview. And then uh, one day Michael J. Fox had come in and I was starstruck that Michael J. Fox had come in. Alan, you and I have talked extensively about how when I was a youth, I was essentially Michael J. Fox's character, Alex B. Keaton. Yes, you were. You were. 
So it was really wild to see him in person. And I had related this to Linehan after we had recorded the radio interview at CFRB 1010, now News Talk 1010. And when I was telling him this story, he was looking at me like I was the only person in the world that mattered. Yes. He watched me speak to him. He took in everything I said, and that made me feel like the most important person in the world. And then the moment of my mouth closed, he went, nice, when can I have the tape? And he turned <laughs> around, and he walked up. He taught me that the power of giving someone your full attention not only ensures that you've got this back and forth that goes on, but you've got a connection with that person. And I, I suspect that part of his success had a lot to do with the feeling that when you were talking in his world, you were the only one that mattered. When you're sitting across from someone, how do you create that connection? Particularly since you can't do it now with a Zoom call the same way you could if they were sitting across from you. Yeah, it is a little different. Although uh, yesterday uh, I interviewed a guy called Clark Peters. He's uh, the star of Spike Lee's new film, The Five Bloods. Uh, the interview goes up uh, this week. And he was in England. We're doing this on uh, via Zoom. And I've done a few of these now. I've done a, you know, a couple of dozen of these things now. And uh, it, it felt more natural. I mean, I do think that you um, have to just go back to the basics. And the basics that I use when I interview people are, I don't talk that much because the people watching aren't there to hear what I have to say about anything. Mm -hmm. uh, I ask very uh, short questions. I rarely ever use the word I in a question and I listen. It's really simple. Interviewing people and making a connection with people is about like your Michael J. Fox story, paying attention, listening, and I will often write down a list of questions and sometimes start with the first question on the list. And uh, by the time I've asked that first question and the person has finished their answer, uh, all bets are off. The, the paper, you'll see it on Pop Life. I've got these little cards that they make up for me with my questions on them. And after the first question is over, the cards are usually put down on the bar and I just, I, I, I riff it because the other thing that is very important to me uh, is not on a Brian Linehan-esque level at all, but I do a lot of research for interviews. Um, I poke around and uh, find out as much as I can because I want to be able to follow the interview wherever it goes. Uh, so they're organic things. Conversations uh, have a life of their own. And as I say, when you're not just talking about promotional stuff, uh, they can go, they can take weird corners. I did an interview with Steve Earle the other day that took some very weird uh, um, zigs and zags. And it's a fantastic interview because we talked about stuff um, that he hasn't talked about a great deal in uh, a lot of interviews that he's done because I gave him a space where he could do it and feel comfortable talking about the political divide in his country and how he's trying to bridge that with some of the new songs that he's written. And when I pressed him on it, uh, we talked about how that could happen, and it's a fascinating interview. And and I've you know looked at and seen a few interviews he's done lately, and it's not something he was talked about in any other one. So that came from me doing my research and then sitting back and listening to him while he was talking and taking the interview where it was going to go. The key for good interviews is twofold. Number one, you've already talked about it, listening. 
when I do an interview, I'll have a whole pile of questions and chances at a successful interview. I have answered. I've asked maybe two of them because the rest of the time I spend listening and following wherever the conversation goes. And if you do that properly, you will very quickly gain the trust of your interview subject. And if they trust you, they'll tell you anything. But it's getting to that point that can be uh, a bit tricky and it takes a lot of practice to learn how to do it. Yeah, the Pop Life interviews are uh, very long. Uh, when we shoot them, uh, they will be 40 minutes or an hour long often. Uh, and we use 12 minutes. And um, I will take as long with a person as I think it's going to take to get what I want from it. And so... Um, the, our, our interviews feel a little different than other ones that are on television because so often when I get somebody, if they do have a new book or a record or whatever it might be that's out there, um, they've got little things that they've practiced saying. They've got talking points they want to hit. And I will spend the first 10 minutes of the interview knocking them off these talking points. Let's get rid of a Get that out of your system because 12 minutes in, they always say it takes about 11 or 12 minutes to actually uh, – make a connection and have a conversation with a person that you don't know. So after about 11, 12 minutes, uh, we're not going to be talking about this anymore. So get it out of the way. I'm going to knock you off these uh, talking points. And then we're going to actually going to have a real conversation. And that's the stuff uh, that we usually air on pop life. And, and the interviews feel like it. they feel different. Well, the, the thing too, is that once you get that stuff out of the way, that's the stuff that they're bored of. That's the stuff that they've had to answer over and over and over again in umpteen interviews before you came along. If they can get that out of the way at the beginning, then they can relax and start talking about stuff that they're actually interested in as human beings. Not that they're not interested in their movie or their book or their album, but they get to talk about stuff. I, I got that all out of the way. Now let's just have a chat. That's right. Yeah. The last interview we did for Pop Life, it hasn't aired yet because uh, of the pandemic. It happened... Uh, just shortly after that, I went to Gordon Lightfoot's house and we interviewed Gordon Lightfoot. And uh, the first song that he ever wrote was called the Hula Hoop song. It was in the 1950s. Hula Hoops were a fad. And, you know, this was, uh, what, what is it, 50 whatever years ago, 50, 60, more than 60 years ago. And my favorite part of the interview is that he sang the song to me. And he goes, I haven't thought about this in years, but this is how it went. Boom. And verse after verse of this terrible song, but in Gordon Lightfoot's voice. Imagine this. Imagine singing this novelty song about a hula hoop in that classic Canadian voice. Uh, I loved it. I loved every minute of that. So those are tools in your broadcaster tool belt that are applicable regardless as to the medium in which you find yourself. But today you find yourself locked at home. You are unable to access that remarkable infrastructure that comes with CTV. One of my favorite points of the Social Media North conversation we had was when you had said that the thing that you missed the most under COVID-19 was walking on to a live active set. And I got to tell you, as a guy who deliberately walked away from an active set two years ago, I feel that. I understand exactly what you mean. There's an energy that comes with it. Um, but having said that, you are doing what you're doing now as a, is it even streaming or do you record it and then put it out? And it's edited and, um, you know, turned it up a little bit. You know, I just felt that when I first started doing these, the first couple are really rudimentary. They're Zoom interviews, yep. and they are just a conversation. 
There's a little opening, a conversation, and a little ending, and bang, put it out there. And, you know, as the hours started to wear on me a little bit, and I thought, if I don't learn to do something new while I'm sitting here, I'm going to go mad. So I started doing more editing on the interviews. Um, there's graphics on them now. There's a, there's It's a much different kind of thing. It's still a Zoom interview, but it looks a little different. And uh, it's been fun sort of thinking about these shows a little differently. I've done paper edits for 25 years on things. Here I'm actually physically doing it all myself. And, uh, and it's been fun. It's been a, a fun thing. But so, yeah, no, we don't, don't live stream. Um, they take a day or so to make, and then I put them up. Let's talk a little bit about the, these, the flexing of new muscle um, and the building of that new muscle as a traditional broadcaster who's working his way in a new media world. One of the things that I particularly liked um, in the In Isolation with series is that you get straight to it. Um, the number of videos I've watched where you're a minute and a half, two and a half, three and a half minutes into a video before you really got to the point tied to the title of whatever that YouTube video is you clicked on, there that is a very traditional old world way of, of, of making media, having a big, long, flowing introduction. You're, you're getting right into it. And that, that's, to me, strikes me as an example of uh, an, uh, an old world broadcaster learning a new media lesson. What are some of those lessons you've learned through this process well the uh, this is it, it's interesting because pop life uh it, to me really kind of rides the line between being um old media it's you know in every sense of the word it's a talk show it's done on a giant set there's 25 or 30 people on the set there's eight cameras you know there's there's all that we shoot on a set we shoot on the same sound stage that the movie Network was shot on. It's really super cool. We, and, and growing up, when I was a kid, I used to watch uh, game shows like Definition and, and uh, Headline Hunters also shot on my soundstage. <laughs> some of the sets, some of the flats, as they call them, are still in that building. Absolutely they are. And I mean, my set that, I'm, that, that we use now, the bar set, uh, parts of that have been kicking around up there for 40 years. We just re-rated I say we, somebody raided the props department and built this set out of, of stuff that was kind of already there. So I wouldn't be at all surprised if part of the definition set is the bar and you know whatever else. But um, Pop Life really rides the line between being that, being this, this big uh, old school model of, of how shows are done. Uh, but in its presentation is a little different. Uh, the introductions are extremely short. I don't mess around. When we have a panel, we use lower thirds, we use graphics. I don't uh, spend a lot of time introducing everybody, which seems to me to be something that I would do on a web series first. On television, everybody likes to hear, you know, and then he was, he's the author of 22 books. And no, no time for that. We zip through stuff. And um, so for me, it, it feels like a mix between old and new. And I think that's why it's done. Uh, so well on Twitter. We were one of the first shows to broadcast live on Twitter uh, from a network television uh, airing uh, to Twitter. And it's done extremely well for us. And I think it works well uh, because it feels like, you know, it could be either or. It could be a big network show, could be a web show. It's somewhere in the middle. 
But what of the ratings of this show? Because when uh, back back to making it all about me, when I walked away from a traditional broadcast environment, I didn't have the respect for the infrastructure that I was walking away from, particularly the transmitter tower. And when I left, the conversation wasn't about content. It was about distribution. Whereas in traditional media, the conversation is about the content. You don't have to think about the distribution because it's already been built and it's been like that for, you know, 60 years. Um, where are you finding success in your web series that you're doing under COVID-19? I'm, I'm on, I'm checking it out on the, the YouTube. We're seeing hundreds of hits, whereas the work you do with Pop Life is is hundreds of thousands. Yeah. Oh, no, Pop Life is, is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands. Right. That show does well. Um, the uh, YouTube uh, channel for In Isolation With um, is a storage unit. Um, it is where I park the shows. Where are you finding success with it then? Yeah, uh, ctvnews.ca. Ah, so you've got that hybrid model of bringing new media into that world and leveraging their existing platform. Yeah, I mean, they get an unbelievable amount of hits every month. And uh, and Pop Life uh, has a page there that always did really well. So I thought, well, why don't we, you know, why don't we just see what happens here? And yeah, by far and away, by... I don't know, thousands of times, uh, the, the numbers are over at ctvnews.ca. This has been absolutely fascinating. So, so on, on your very first episode of In Isolation With, you said, you know, we could be doing this for two weeks. We could be doing this for two months. How's it feeling now that it's most likely at least September before you find yourself back in that action-packed studio you so miss? In Isolation With will be with me as long as I feel like making it. The great thing about this web show is that, you know, I've been doing two a week uh, for 10 weeks now. We're in 20 shows almost. I think there's 19 shows now. Um, Soledad O'Brien's coming on next week, so that'll be the 20th show. And, and, I, I was thinking, I like round numbers. So 20 might be it. Uh, but if I'm going to be sitting here until uh, September, maybe I'll go for 40. And then that'll be it. Then I'll retire it. So long as you have enough for syndication. Well, you need 100 for that. You need 100 for syndication. That's right. Yeah. Richard, great speaking with you. Thank you so much for dropping by Studio 3B. Thanks for having me. Richard Kraus is the man behind Pop Life. And, of course, if you go on the YouTube, which is where you don't want to see it, you go to ctvnews.ca to pick up his uh, latest web series, uh, which is uh, In Isolation With. Thank you so much. I'm going to go watch Billions. I got two episodes of Space Force left. I'm not digging it. I'm with you. I'm not digging it either. It's a nice little distraction, but beyond that, no. I found it dull. I, I watched the first three episodes, and we were excited about it. Steve Carell, we love Steve Carell. I felt like I was uh, swimming through molasses trying to get through those three episodes. But the good thing is that Netflix trademarked the name Space Force before the Trump administration did. <laughs> As a result, the American government is going to have to change the name of their Space Force because of Steve Carell. And his Netflix show. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'll watch it just uh, just in solidarity. Guests of Geeks and Beats stay at the luxurious Trump Hotel in downtown Toronto. Because when you think class, you think Trump.
Do you recall when we had um, Rob Wells on talking about his Don't Stop Believing crowdsourced song that uh, we had a co-producer for that episode? Uh, okay, did we? We did. $25 made him the co-producer. Kurt Austin was his name. But because it's Patreon, he didn't set a lifetime limit. Oh, no. So I was like, the man had mentioned he was only there to support Rob Wells. But he didn't set a lifetime limit. I'm like, I think we're going to ding this guy until kingdom come. He has canceled his support of the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross. Well, it's because you tried to screw him. No, 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 no. No, we didn't try to screw him. Although we are going to try to screw him because we're going to tell him that we can give him a refund on that second co-producer credit. Since he was only intended for the first guy. Oh, I see. Okay. But he's going to have to send us an email and ask. That that's where we screw him. Okay, I get it. <laughs> so we've got his extra twenty five bucks <laughs> until he turns around and says, "Yeah, I should probably ask for that money back." But he hasn't so far. So maybe we should just say, "Kurt, thank you so much for supporting the show twice." Yes, thank you. We really appreciate it. We, by the way, we we got a uh, a Cafe Press check for sixty seven U S dollars. Cafe Press are these the people that make our swag? Our Miracle Travel Mug of Traveling, the Geeks and Beats Free for 10 Bucks License Plate Frame, and the G&B Free Bumper Sticker for $3.49. Oh, so we sold $67 U.S. for the stuff. Cool. Yes, including one Miracle Travel Mug of Traveling, which uses the power of science to keep hot things hot and cold things cold. So if you'd like to support the show and actually get something in return, go to geeksandbeats.com, click the support the show link as uh, we can thank Kurtz Austin for doing so earlier and uh, the various people. One bottle license plate frame. That was supposed to be a joke. (laughs) You know what we should do? What's that? We should have washable face masks. Oh, we should get in on the face mask game. We I spent one hundred U.S. dollars on ten N ninety. Sorry, not ten N ninety five masks. Ten K N ninety five masks. I don't even know what those are. Which is the Chinese oh. industry equivalent to the N ninety five, but because it's Chinese rules, it's got to have a K in front of it, which got makes it. me think: who knows whether the things are actually working? You're probably breathing in asbestos. Right. It, it feels like I'm breathing through a cardboard box. Right. Um, they finally arrived. I was convinced I was never going to get those. But yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe we should jump on this bandwagon because I'm on the I'm on the face plant. And every time I turn around, it's another ad for some customized face gear that probably won't do squat for COVID-19. So we might as well get some and offer false hope to some people. Right. So then the question becomes, what do you put on the mask. Do you put the logo at the center where the mouth would be, or do you put our faces on the cheeks? You know what? I'm thinking faces on the cheeks. <laughs> Just be, well, we wouldn't sell any, but we should come up with, okay, uh, sidebar. What if we put, what if we put your mouth on it and my mouth on it, and you could buy an Alan Cross face mask so that you would look like Alan Cross from the nose down. <laughs> Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter, Facebook, and get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation. Stand by for the headlines. 
We still have to create a. We still have to create a segment called Alan Cross is on the worst email distribution lists ever. <laughs> hey, we do. So could you do me a favor? Could you compile oh, okay. like three or five of those emails okay. for, us for next week? Okay. Okay. When they come in, I will uh, I will definitely send them off to you and you can make fun of me. I don't sign up for any of these things, by the way. They they come to me whether I want them or not. That's what you say.